and then next Sunday to conclude the Samson part of the book of Judges. Before we hear the word of God read, let us go again to the Lord asking for his help in understanding this text. Our God, you have inspired your word. This is breathed out by God, and it is honey to our lips. It is your word, even when there are difficult things in it. These difficult things are for us. These make up the life and godliness. They are part of the life and godliness that you have given us in divine knowledge, in knowledge of the divine Jesus Christ. We pray that his spirit would help us to understand this text with greater clarity, not for the sake of knowledge alone, for knowledge puffs up, but for the sake of glorifying your glorious name. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Judges 16, verses 1 through 22. Samson went down to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went in to her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the, at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound, that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then, Samson, then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day, and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart, and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, 
and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. If you know the story of Spider-Man, and I imagine many of you do, you know that Spider-Man got some of his, or got his spidey powers because he was bitten by a radioactive spider. Now, I have in mind the movie version with Tobey Maguire, perhaps the best of all Spider-Man. I heard a moan there. Well, Spider-Man soon found out that he had some powers that no one else had. And so he tested out his abilities, and he eventually grew into these powers, and even put himself forward as a contender for three whole minutes with Bonesaw. Three minutes of playtime with Bonesaw. Spider-Man grew stronger, bolder, and prouder. But he was given sound advice from his beloved Ben, his uncle Ben, whose advice is repeated on and on, just before Ben's tragic death. With great power comes great responsibility. Such truism isn't confined to the cinema, but is even a biblical truth. With great power comes great responsibility. As we continue in Samson's story, we see a man who has great power. We ask, does his responsibility match his might? He has been given a sign of divine strength. And not just a sign, but he has been given divine strength over and over again. What will he do with this sign? Will he use it for the glory of God? Will he use it for the service of others? Will he play around with it? Will he view it as a plaything, something to be mistreated? Will he use it for his own acclaim, for his own self-exaltation, for his own glory? Will he humbly appropriate the gift of strength, or will he arrogate to himself undue honors? Likewise, we have been given signs. We have been given true strength from the Lord. We have been given sacraments, means of grace. And the question for us, then, is what will we do with them? How will we use them? Will we mistreat them? Our spiritual strength comes from the Lord, who joins the sign of his presence with the thing signified. Look again with me at verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. And so we enter what has been called the epilogue of the Samson story. You recall, at the end of chapter 15... The author mentions that 
Samson had judged Israel and had judged Israel for 20 years, which is how the story ends for all the judges. There's a mention of how long the person judged, and then there's the next judge. And yet here we have a whole other story. And in chapter 16, it ends with the same refrain about how long Samson had judged, that he had judged Israel. What we have here then is an epilogue, a sad epilogue, sad for the most part anyways. What we have here is Samson's downfall because he is without the Spirit. And as we'll see soon this morning, to be without the Spirit is to be the frailest of people. Samson comes to a prostitute in Gaza. Gaza is a Philistine town. And so we ask, well, what's going on here? And it might seem obvious to some. Well, clearly, Samson is going to indulge in the lust of his flesh. He is so immersed in Philistinism that it is hard for him to resist that Philistine flesh. We couldn't put it past Samson to act this way. Certainly, we've already seen Samson act in a similar way. In fact, in the beginning of his ministry, he insisted that his parents bring to him, go get for him a Philistine, because she was right in his eyes. And that is a possible understanding of the text, but I think there is actually something more going on here than first meets the eye. The phrase, he went into her, can simply mean he came to her. He came to the woman. He came to this prostitute which, of course, doesn't answer why he came. We'll get to that in a moment. And this phrase, he came into her, he came to her, can refer to that intimate encounter, but it can also simply refer to coming to someone. The language here actually likely parallels what is found in the book of Judges, chapter 4, verse 22, in which Barak went into jail and saw Sisera lying dead. Nothing untoward happened between Barak and jail. Nothing untoward happened between Jael and Sisera, though he came into her. But the question is, well, why then would Samson go into a prostitute if he wasn't to indulge in the lusts of his eyes, lust of the flesh? Well, I submit the answer to you is to avoid detection. To avoid detection from the enemy. Doesn't completely work, but that was the goal. And at this point, we actually have a parallel with the spies and Rahab in Judges chapter 2. You can read that later on today, and you can see these parallels. Both in, Judges, in Joshua chapter 2 and in Judges chapter 16, we have the mention of female prostitutes. Also, the men in both passages are said to go into her, come to her. In Joshua chapter 2, would we say that these spies had an an unholy union with Rahab? No. There's no hint of that. In both passages, the enemies discover the presence and the purpose of the men. So they were able to be there just for a short period of time, and then they had to get out because their presence was detected. And in both passages, the spies and Samson escape in dramatic form. You recall in Judges 2, or Judges 2, the spies escape of the window. And here we have quite the dramatic exit with the gates and the bar and all of it pulled off and Samson leaving. And the final parallel between these two texts is that we know that the enemy territory will 
fall. In Joshua 2, we know that Jericho will fall. And in Judges 16, we know that Gaza will fall. Now, you have to wait until next week to see the fall of Gaza. But if you've read all of Judges 16, you know Samson's final act. And so that's why we get to this mention of Samson taking the doors of the city gates and their posts off. The city gates, of course, were necessary. They were crucial to the city's defense, to its protection. You have no gates, then you are vulnerable to enemy attack. Abraham, you might recall, in Genesis 22, verse 17, is promised that his offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. The children of Abraham will go to the gate of the enemies, rip him off, will overpower the enemy. And so Samson travels to Hebron, which, by the way, is 40 miles away. This is a several days' journey. And he, he drops these gates, this bar, off at Hebron. Now, why would he do that? He does this at the very center of Judah to demonstrate a sure victory over the Gazites. They will go down. They will lose. They will be conquered. And you remember Judges 15. We saw this last week, that Judah failed to support Samson. That he was the single solitary savior. That the men of Judah gave him up to the Philistines rather than join him to take down the Philistines. And so Samson does for Israel what Judah fails to do. They have betrayed the deliverer, and yet he remains victorious, at least for now. The Lord uses Samson's encounters with these women back in chapter 14 and in chapter 16 like he had used the spy's encounter with Rahab that he might be used to defeat the enemies of God. And there is no way that Samson could have pulled off the doors, could have shouldered them for 40 miles without the Lord's supernatural strength, just like God had equipped Samson with the lion, just like God had equipped Samson to tie up those foxes, make them fiery foxes, and to take down the Philistines time and again. So the Lord is using Samson here for the eventual downfall of Gaza, of the Philistines. As we learn later on in this text, the Lord connects Samson's strength with his Nazarite hair, that vow that he had taken. And so the application point already we see is this, that the Lord uses his given signs to exhibit his presence and his power. Here we see the importance of divine sacraments, these holy signs and seals of the gospel promise of God. It would be an overstatement to say that Samson's hair was a sacrament. Samson's hair was not a sacrament, okay? He could not partake of his hair and nourish and be fed upon Christ. It was not a sacrament. Nevertheless, it was a tangible sign, a divine strength. It was a tangible sign, a divine presence. In a similar way, the wedding ring is not a sacrament, nor is marriage a sacrament. But does that mean that the wedding ring or that marriage have nothing to say about God? Of course not. The wedding ring 
is a tangible sign that the man and the wife are committed to each other. What happens when you take off the wedding ring? Do you just suddenly stop being married? I hope not, because people have to take off their wedding rings for a, very, for a variety of reasons. Take it off. They don't stop being married. But does that mean that the wedding ring is without significance? Of course not. You can imagine a husband and wife arguing with each other, and one of them takes off the ring and just throws it in the trash. Is that a meaningless act? Of course not. It's full of meaning. It's, we think this, this marriage is over. And so I'm going to cast aside the symbol, the sign of that, of that marriage. What if two people put rings on each other and even make vows? Does that mean that they are thereby married? Well, to many in our nation, yeah. Put rings on each other of the same gender, and that means you're married. If you do it before some civil magistrate, take some vows, you are married. Well, not in the eyes of God. That is not a real marriage. And parents all over the world are thankful that this is not the case for their own children who like to play. And I can imagine a bedroom in which a handful of kids are playing, and there is a play minister, and there is a play husband and a play wife, and there are witnesses, and there's even a sheet of paper that says, we are married, and people sign, and witnesses sign it as well. And we're thankful that that does not make a marriage. But the ceremony has significance anyways. And so the ring, when it is used rightly, is a sign of the constant faith and abiding love that is given us by God. And there were many sacraments and signs in the Old Testament of God's grace, of his grace, of his presence, of his power, of his provision, of his permanence. I don't have time to recount all of them, but think to the beginning, the tree of life. Many of our reformers say that the tree of life was a sacrament. It was the first sacrament of eternal life. That they would be able to partake of that if Adam and Eve were obedient and didn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then they would have that tree of life. Eternal life. Think of the rainbow. Is that a meaningless event? Is that a meaningless part of creation? Of course not. God, through that rainbow, is telling us that he is never going to destroy us, that he will always provide for us as long as he has us here on this earth. And as it is a bow moving heavenward, God is saying, may I be shot through if I do not keep my covenant with you, Noah, and all yours. Of course, there's also the sign of circumcision in the Old Testament, that great sign of the Old Covenant, that we have been set apart, that we have been cut off from the world. And not only cut off from the world, but we've been cleansed by God, that we are new. The law of God isn't just something that we do, but it is to be on our hearts. Think of blood. Why is there so much blood in the Bible? Is it to gross us out? No. To speak of the life that is in the person 
and not just the life, but the costliness of that life when that life is shed. Or water. So much imagery of water flowing, cleansing, purifying, because God washes away our sins. This is what we looked at with the Heidelberg Catechism just a little bit ago. So many of these graces from God. And likewise, in the New Testament, Christ instituted two sacraments. He has given us other symbols of his love. Why does the minister preach the gospel at a wedding? By the way, he should preach the gospel at a wedding. And I've often been uh, told that when I do preach the gospel at the wedding, uh, that it's a, it's a surprise to people. I gave you the gospel. And I thought, well, why wouldn't I give the gospel? Well, what, what is a wedding but a picture of the gospel? This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound. This marriage between a husband and a wife is because Christ and the church, because Christ has wedded with formerly an unfaithful bride. Picture of the gospel. What does the tabernacle, what does the temple, what does the dwelling place of God feature? It features the gospel of God's gracious presence to dwell with man. It is God's way of making a way for sinful man to live in the presence of God. Why is the scripture replete with the image of blood? Because it is a picture of the gospel of Jesus' costly life for us. Why is the cross constantly set before us as an image to behold? Because we're gluttons for punishment? Because we want to just see how violently our Savior was, was killed? No, because it was on that cross when the penalty was paid. The wrath of God was satisfied when Christ died on that cross. That is why we boast of the cross. Why is the empty tomb given to us in Scripture? Again, because of the gospel. Because Christ didn't stay dead, he was raised from the dead. And now he, he gives us new life. As, as Paul tells us, he was raised for our justification that we might be declared righteous by God in his sight because of Christ's death and resurrection. The new life we have. In countless ways, the Lord has shown us over and again his covenantal kindness. And in two very tangible ways, in the New Testament on here, Christ exhibits his grace to us through baptism and the Lord's Supper. We had a baptism last week. We had the Lord's Supper last week, as we have every Lord's Day. And our confession says that these two sacraments, the only sacraments that, that there are uh, from the New Testament on, they represent Christ and Christ's benefits. They speak about what Christ has done and the benefits that we receive from that work of Christ. These confirm our interest in him. These put a physical difference between the church and the world. And they are given for us for our solemn engagement to serve Christ. These are divine gifts to us to show forth the gospel of Christ and to show forth his immense love for us. He didn't have baptism for his own, for himself. He wanted that as a picture for you. Yes, God is doing something through baptism. The Lord didn't have a meal just so he could have a meal, but he wanted you to have a meal with him. He wanted you to commune with him. He wanted you to be nourished by him, strengthened by him. 
And there is no power in these signs, these seals themselves. There's no power in baptism itself. There's no power in the Lord's Supper itself. But only by the Holy Spirit who has chosen to work through them for our good, for our growth, for our godliness. We can't say that baptism doesn't matter. We can't say the Lord's Supper doesn't matter because the act itself doesn't do anything. God has used these. He has graciously decided to use these as means of grace, as real means of real grace, of the real God who is the real Redeemer. What shall we do with them? Will we avail ourselves of these means of grace? Of course, there's also the means of, of grace found in the Word of God, preached. And there's means of grace of, of prayer. What will we do with these means of grace? Will we mistreat them? Will we just go through them in a, in a perfunctory, casual way? Well, we do it every week. It's just something we do. It is something we do. But why do we do it? Our own confession tells us, or our larger catechism tells us, to improve our baptism. And for many, for many of you, you've been bap- you were baptized as a child. And you don't remember your own baptism, unless you have a really good memory. I remember my baptism because I wasn't baptized as an infant. I came to Presbyterianism much later in life. And so I do remember my baptism. Does this mean, for those kids who've been baptized at a young age, who don't remember their baptism, that the baptism was meaningless? Of course not. We're told to improve upon the baptism. That is to say, to reflect on what the baptism means and how it means this for us, that God washes away our sins, that God cleanses us, that God gives us a righteousness that is outside of us, that is for us, Christ's righteousness, that Christ had undergone the the watery, the, the, the wrath of God, the chaos because of our sin. He had undergone all that. He paid the penalty for us. That we are then safe in the ark of God as the waters of wrath would crash against the ark. We are safe. So we reflect on what God has done for us. And we can rejoice in the Lord. And we take the Lord's Supper every single Lord's Day. Because it is another opportunity, another means of real grace to commune with our God who has saved us. We don't say... Every, every day, well, no, no thanks, Mom. I already ate yesterday. I don't need another meal. Last week's meal was enough. No. Perhaps if you've only had one meal today, say one was not enough. I need more. I need more food. And this is spiritual food. Don't ever tire of God's means of grace. Baptism, Lord's Supper. Don't ever tire of the way that God has given you to access his throne through prayer. Don't say, well, I prayed this morning, so I don't need to pray this afternoon. No, pray without ceasing. Because you're always weak. You always depend upon God. We We always need the Lord. We then always should be praying to our Lord having a spirit of prayer, a spirit of acknowledgement of who God is. We don't say each Lord's Day, well, I've already heard a message. 
preached. Or maybe, hey, I, I already listened to something on Sermon Audio this morning, so I don't need to go to Cross Creek. I don't need to go to church and hear another message. Or, you know, I already heard a sermon on Judges 16, 1 through 22. I don't need to go again. You do need to go. I need to go. I need to hear the very message I'm preaching. Because this is food for us. This is God's gift to us. He doesn't have to feed us. He doesn't have to love us. But oh, how he loves us. And sometimes we can despise the sign or we can ask it to carry more weight than it can hold. Seeking the grace of God exhibited in the sign by overemphasizing the work of the sign. And I'm not going to unleash the whole beast that is federal vision, but this is one issue, this is one error of federal vision, is that there is an overemphasis on the physical right of baptism. And we see this in other denominations as well, in other religious systems, there is an overemphasis on the, the physical act of doing something. And then we think that by doing it, we can then rest assured that it has been done and that we have the grace. There's nothing else to do. Nothing else to, to believe. There's no one in whom to rest. And we see Samson resting in his own sign. This is where we see Samson starting to fall. He plays fast and loose with his loose locks of strength. We have a case here of overconfidence, indeed of self-confidence. It's like that undefeated team that ends up being destroyed on the field, and all because they didn't prepare for the game against that regularly defeated team. Now, whether Samson left the prostitute morally unscathed is a matter of debate, but there are no questions about his moral failing with Delilah. We're not told exactly the time between verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 4 just says, after this. After this, he, he loved a woman. He didn't marry her. He only had one wife, wife in chapter 14. But we do see immense love, perhaps just lust for this woman. Is she a Philistine or an Israelite? It might not matter, but it might matter a great deal. I think it's assumed that Delilah was a Philistine. Nowhere in this text says that she was Philistine. And there are reasons to think that she actually wasn't a Philistine, but was an Israelite. She was, after all, in the Valley of Sorek, which was in Judah's territory and near Samson's birthplace. And if she was a Philistine, why would Samson have put so much trust in her? Well, you might say, because he just really had a hard time resisting Philistines. And perhaps, I mean, that is true. But we can say, as a commentator once said, that he, Samson did know who the enemy was. He did know that he was to begin to deliver the Israelites from the Philistines. And why was there so large a bribe to a native Philistine if she were Philistine? It would make a lot more sense to offer so high a bribe to overcome whatever allegiance Delilah might have felt she still had to Samson. 
1,100 pieces of silver from each of the five lords of the Philistines. 5,500 pieces of silver, which is an astronomical amount in that day. Jeremiah bought a field for 17 pieces of silver. And a slave was worth 30 pieces of silver. 5,500 pieces of silver sets her up and whatever children she might have and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and on and on for the rest of eternity. But also, what we have seen with the Philistines is they, they have tended to threaten their own with burning. They didn't sweeten the pot with money. But they said, you, you better do this or we're going to burn the house down upon you. And this is a betrayal we see in Judges 16. There's no doubt about it. There is betrayal here. Delilah betrays Samson. And betrayal makes much more sense if she's actually an Israelite. And what we see finally here is that she does what the men of Judah did in the previous chapter. Her actions parallel the traitorous conduct of Judah in chapter 15, who also bound Samson with new ropes. Same language. Thus, Delilah and Judah betray the deliverer. But whether she was an Israelite by birth, she was certainly a Philistine by heart. David says, all that mattered was Philistine money. All that mattered to her was money. And so she's happy to seduce Samson. She's happy to play around with Samson. Delilah saw dollar signs, but Samson saw playful foreplay. Samson saw an opportunity to showboat his strength. And so we have three times she's asking Samson where his strength lies, and three times she's frustrated. And when you read the account, you think, is she just saying this like one day and then like, like she starts on Monday and she's denied and then on Tuesday she does it again and then on Wednesday she does it again? Is this like a three, just a three-day thing? I don't think so. This is because she's pressing him day after day. Give me the answer. Tell me where your strength lies. We don't know how long this lasted, but her actions weighed heavily upon him. Even the text says, to death. And so Samson says, you can bind, bind with bowstrings. That'll do the trick. She tries it. Has the Philistines come upon him? And no dice. Didn't work. You lied to me. You've mocked me. Okay, Samson's fine. I'll, I'll tell you again. You bind with new ropes. All right, let's try that. Nope, didn't work. You've lied to me. You've mocked me. Tell me where your strength lies. All right, all right, I'll tell you. You just, you know, just see Samson just messing around with her. All right, I'll tell you. Bind my seven locks of hair. And there, he's close, isn't he? There's the hair. If you bind those, you're going to be fine. You can take me down. Nope. Delilah strikes out. 0 for 3. And you can see how much fun Samson was having at her and the Philistines' expense. Like a magician who knows the real secret to his tricks, he lets people try to work out the mystery. He allows them to fumble all over themselves. And he allows them to end up just angry and frustrated and say, just tell me how you did it. So he might be playing around. But we see a vexatious Delilah, an annoying Delilah, someone who presses 
For Samson, the adage, once bitten, twice shy, didn't compute. It was all a game. Or maybe it did compute, and you said, well, I haven't been bitten at all. Look at my strength. And yet verse 16 says that Delilah pressed him hard with her words day after day. And here we're supposed to remember what happened in chapter 14 when his wife was threatened by the Philistines to get out of him the interpretation of the riddle. And she eventually got it out. And so Delilah says, oh, Samson, you you don't really love me. I thought that you loved me. I thought that you were different. I thought that you knew that I was different. I thought we were different. Us against the Philistines, right? You and me. How did you lie to me? Why did you do this? Oh, Samson. Samson, you can just picture him saying, Oh, honey, don't cry. How can I make it up to you? Delilah says, I want your heart. There it is. I want your heart, honey. I want to know your innermost being. It isn't about the mystery. It really isn't about where your strength lies. That's just tangential to this discussion. What really matters is that I know that I have you, and that you know that you have me, and that we are together forever. That I have your heart. I want your heart. Will you give me your heart? You just imagine this scenario, because she's doing this day after day. And a man who has been weighed down by the girl of his dreams will sooner cast himself into the sea by the anger that is his love than to see her shed even a tear. No, I can't allow her to suffer this way. I will tell her all my heart. Surely she won't abuse this information. And so we see here that he didn't follow his ancient father, Joseph, who was pressed by Potiphar's wife day after day to lie with her, but who ran away from the temptation as soon as it came, if not before. Should have run away. Samson then feels the effects of the adulterous woman that Proverbs 2 talks about, warns about. Her words are smooth, but her house sinks down to death. And suddenly, it's no longer a game. Suddenly, it's no longer a joke. It's not something that they can just play around together with as as a new couple. No, no longer a game. And yet, Samson never thinks that Delilah will actually betray him. Or he thinks that he'll never be bested. That even if, he does, even if he does tell the secret, he could still take down anyone who challenges him. And so he's blinded by lust and pride. Samson's playfulness with temptation, his despising even of the sign of his strength, is the cause of his tragic downfall. Can you relate? Can you relate to that reality here of, of Samson of playing around with temptation? Can you relate to the struggle of your temptations? We all have them. We all have our own besetting sins. Your sin looks different from that sin, sin of another. We all have our struggles. Surely we all can relate to Samson here. Surely we all can relate to the the playfulness of the temptation. Well, I'll just go this far. I'll just put my toe in the water here. 
and soon you find that you are plunging into the whole abyss of pain, of your own sin. Or perhaps you can relate to despising even God's means of grace, looking down upon God's ways of, of helping you grow in godliness, of helping you to see the beauty of salvation in the Lord. I don't think any one of us takes as seriously as he ought to the value of the Word of God the value of baptism, the value of the Lord's Supper, the value of prayer. None of us, none of us takes it as seriously as we ought to. None of us plums the depths, the riches of God's means of grace. And sometimes we despise it. Sometimes we say, I've got other things to do. I have more important things to do. I have more important people to talk to. I have more important things to read. I can't spend my time in prayer. I have so many activities to do. I don't need the Lord's Supper today. Can you relate to that? I know I can. In verse 17, he says, He told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When he is speaking of his strength, he has in mind here the spirit. And we know how the story goes, don't we? He gives in, and she gives him over. It is tragic. Samson thought that he had the Philistines under control. But he did so only when he was controlled by the spirit. And he was not controlled by the Spirit at this time. Verse 20 might be, well, I think it's the most tragic verse in this chapter, and one of the most tragic verses in the book of Judges. Verse 20, the second part, it says, after he's confident, I'll just shake myself free, it says, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. He didn't know God left him. He didn't know his strength was now depleted. A spiritless Samson is a weak man. Here we see in Samson a picture of a spiritless existence, uppercase S. God, through Samson here, shows us what life looks like if life is not lived in faithful, daily dependence on the Spirit, who is our strength. Much can be accomplished with the Spirit. Nothing can be accomplished without him. We can do no good thing without the Spirit of the Christ, without the Spirit sealing us as branches to the vine, constantly feeding us with his grace, constantly empowering us. We can do nothing apart from the Father, the Son, and the Spirit indwelling us. That's what we see here. And so the final application point here is that we must never presume upon the Spirit presence of God. The Holy Spirit is never ours to control. Nicodemus learned that lesson, didn't he? The gifts of God are never cause for self-exaltation. The means of grace are never to be treated with contempt. They're never to be treated as a plaything. 
never to be treated just casually. Now, the Spirit, like the wind, blows where He wishes, and we cannot control Him. But instead, it is He who leads us. It is He who empowers us. It is He who seals us. It is He who indwells us. It is He, it is He, it is He. You can do nothing apart from Christ working in you through the power and the ministry of the Spirit. And Samson's mistake lay in thinking that the Spirit would never leave him for a time, would never withdraw his presence, his power for a time. He presumed upon that means. He presumed upon God's strength. Israel's mistake also lay in thinking that as God's chosen ones, God would never leave them for a time. But read the prophets. With so many warnings, God is going to drive them out. God will even leave them for a time. He will, Jeremiah 3 says he will divorce Israel. And then he will, he will remarry Israel. Dale Ruff Davis says, A church may believe that God would never write Ichabod over its denominational headquarters. Ichabod, the glory departs. Thinks most, pretty much anyone in a denomination thinks that, yeah, we are the faithful one. We are the one that's most faithful, most committed to Christ. And we just rest on our laurels, I suppose. And we forget that we really need God's Spirit upon us every single day we do ministry. Every single day we do life. And so what do you do, dear ones, if you find yourself like Samson? If you find yourself in the Spirit has left for a time. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourself struggling for that sin? You never can get, you can never overthrow or overcome that sin. What do you do when you're in that relationship that doesn't seem to budge? What do you do when you are in that state of suffering that seems to last in eternity? And you are approaching despair. Maybe you have actually arrived at that point. What do you do if you're like Samson? There's only one thing to do, and that is to flee to Christ. He is the one who has saved you, and he is the one who is going to sustain you by the Spirit. There's no other person, there's no other way to be faithful, to receive God's grace, to receive his mercy, to know his patience. There's no other way to battle against sin, but by the Spirit, the Spirit of the Christ. And so you run to Christ. You run to Christ through prayer. You run to Christ through attending worship. You run to Christ through improving your baptism. You run to the Christ through taking the Lord's Supper. I'm too weak, people say. I'm not worthy enough to take the Lord's Supper. Whoever said you were? Whoever said we were strong enough to come to the Lord's table? We weren't. That's why it was made for us. You come to the Lord's table and you eat because you're weak. And God strengthens you. 
You run to Christ through trustworthy friends who point you to Jesus, who can encourage you in the Lord. Perhaps some of them have actually struggled with the very thing that you're struggling with, and God has given them victory. Not a complete victory. We will always struggle with, against sin. We'll never be perfect in this life. We'll always be battling things. And when we think we've overcome it, Paul's words are, are noteworthy. Take heed, lest you fall. I've already conquered anger. I'm no longer an angry person. Well, praise God that God has moved you to a point where you are more at peace, that you are more calm, that you give a, a slow answer that turns away wrath. But sometimes God humbles us by allowing us to see that, well, we blew up at our kids that day. Or we said that thing under our breath when we were driving. Maybe we said it out loud. Maybe we said it to the person. Maybe we rolled down our window and cursed at them. And the good news is that God forgives even that sin. And the next one. And the next one. Sins of thoughts and words and deeds, God has forgiven. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He has forgiven us of all of our sins. He didn't just look at our past sins and say, okay, that's enough. We'll just cleanse those. We'll forgive those. And then they're on their own for the present. It doesn't bring us to a state of neutrality where now we have to earn our salvation through our own you know, good behavior. We have to stay in God's good graces by our conduct. No, of course not. John Owen says, without the Holy Spirit, we might as well burn our Bibles. John Owen said that? Yes, he did. That seems like a wild statement, doesn't it? Now, John Owen does not want you to burn your Bible. But what's he getting at? He's saying that the Word of God is only the Word of God because of the Holy Spirit. This, it is Spirit-inspired. It is breathed out. It is God-breathed. Spirit gives life. These are living and active words. These aren't dead words on a dead page from dead men. The men aren't even dead. They're alive in Christ with the Lord right now. Worshiping, even as we are worshiping. That's what Paul says. But what it is to say, what John Owen is saying, is that we lean upon the Spirit of God. We depend on the Spirit of the Christ for all of life and godliness. And so, brothers and sisters, will you pray in the Spirit? Do we strive to walk in step with the Spirit? Do we care if our actions would grieve the Spirit? As those who cry in the Spirit, Abba, Father, we ask for the Spirit's ongoing ministry in us. But a big question is, is there any confidence that when we pray this way, when we act in this way, that we will be heard? Yes. All the confidence that the Word of God gives you. Remember, we are, in, we are since Pentecost, aren't we? Samson had the Spirit. And it would be a mistake to say he had more of the Spirit than we do. We actually have more of the Spirit than Samson did. But Samson did great feats, didn't he? I, mean, I don't think any of us has tied up 300 foxes, set them ablaze on a grain, standing grain. And don't, I don't commend that behavior. 
God doesn't want you to do that. I don't know how many of you guys have taken down a lion single-handedly. Maybe some of you have, if you were deployed. I don't, I don't know. We look at those acts of Samson, we say, wow, I wish I had that, I wish I had the Spirit indwelling me like the Spirit was upon Samson. And Christ's answer, since Acts 2, is you do. You have the Spirit. Son of God has the Spirit without measure. He has poured upon all of us at Pentecost. We are Pentecostal Christians in that we have the Spirit of God dwelling us, empowering us. More than Samson did. More than anyone in the Old Testament did. Praise be to God. And so Paul says that means that we don't have to subject our members to unrighteousness anymore. That we can put the deeds of flesh to death by the power of the Spirit. And do you notice the very end of this section? It ends on a subtle yet hopeful note. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. I just got chills from saying that. Maybe you did. It has nothing to do with the temperature in the room. But the temperature of this text, the hair of his head began to grow. If the hair of his head is that sign of God's strength, this is the author's way of saying, there's more to the story. Yes, his eyes have been gouged out. Yes, Samson fell significantly. He should have never given his heart to Delilah. But the Lord isn't done with Samson yet. How true is that for us? Yes, you've, you've fallen. Yes, you've sinned grievously. Yes, you probably even question your own salvation because of what you've done. And there's so many of those buts in Scripture. But God, who's rich in mercy, his tender love for us. He doesn't allow our sin to get the last word. He allows the Son to have the last word. It is finished. He allows the Spirit to have the last word. You're sealed in the Spirit. Your strength never lies in what you have done, but in whose you are and in what you have. I'm not talking about earthly riches. I'm talking about heavenly ones. As Paul would say, that we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. God has given us his means of grace, his sources of strength, that we might live in step with the Spirit, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. Let's pray. Our gracious, strong, mighty God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in a text that seems so hopeless because of a man's sin, there is a glimmer of hope that you are not done with Samson, that you are not done with us. In this prayer, is fitting that we pray for our own transformation. And we pray this, Lord, with faith. We know that we have not arrived. We know that we have not been as sanctified as we'd like to be, as you would like us to be. 
But we don't despair, O oh God, because we know that you are still with us, that you are still giving us your grace every single day. And so we pray that you would continue to use that grace in our lives, that we might grow to be more and more like Jesus, who is our Lord, who is our Savior. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders.